A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this special series on the history of the Jews of the Soviet Union has been made possible by Shuvu Chazoin Avraham Schools, and it is sponsored by Avram Biederman and Yossi Hach, the co-chairman of Shuvu, and it is dedicated in honor of the thousands of Shuvu Talmidim. Now, it has been a while since we had a Jewish History Soundbites episode aired, uh, almost two weeks, I think, since the last one, which was under Chaim Brisker, which was wildly popular. Actually had a nice uh, mistake there. A listener pointed out that I mentioned Reb Chaim Brisker's son-in-law, Persh Glickson, in an earlier episode, about Slanim, and I mentioned in that episode that he was a Slanim chassid, and then when I got to talk about Reb Chaim Brisker, I decided that Reb Hirsch Glaxon was a Gera chassid, so it happens to be, it's uh, very uh, perceptive of that listener to pick that up. Well, that's an oops, uh, sorry, my bad. It does seem that he was a Gera chassid, I, I guess I got mixed up. Either way, um, I was on the road with some great, great trips one after the other, so it was a little bit hectic. Finally back and settling down, and here we are ready for another episode. I had the privilege, uh, actually, of celebrating a siyum on Seder Mayer of the Dafyaimi in Prague, together with the Avi Ezri Shul from Borough Park, a really great tru- group, a really great trip. Some groups are just interesting and inspiring, and others are all that and also fun. This was one of those so that was a fantastic trip. Uh, now things are settling down. We're ready to steam ahead with some really, really exciting stories for the Jewish History Soundbites podcast coming up the next few weeks. And there's a lot a lot in store. So stay tuned. There will be coming out more consistently and not in the erratic fashion that it has been in the last several weeks. Um, we'll commence with uh, something that I've been wanting to do for a while. It has been piqued my interest for the last couple of years, and I've read quite extensively about it, and that is the history of the Jews of the Soviet Union. It is such a fascinating and unfortunately not uh, uh, well-known enough episode of recent Jewish history, and what it is known about it is often misunderstood. And then Shuvu, this incredible organization which runs a school system in Israel for children from families 
primarily but not exclusively from the former Soviet Union, approached me to do this project about the history of the Jews of the Soviet Union. So needless to say, I jumped at the opportunity. So here we are presenting a three-part series on Soviet Jewry, and I'm pretty certain that the listeners of Jewish History Soundbites will enjoy it immensely. And I'm looking forward to hearing feedback from you uh, and comments, critique, whatever it is. Um, I want to remind you that this is a very vast subject, um, and of course in three parts it's impossible uh, to cover it extensively, so for the most part it'll be a general overview and I'll zoom in occasionally on specific episodes and personalities. All attempts will be made to have it as all-encompassing as possible, Uh, so thank you to Shuvu not only for the wonderful work which they do, but also for affording us all with the opportunity to explore the history of Soviet Jewry. Another side note, uh, this series was discussed and planned over the course of the last couple of months. Uh, I don't think anyone at that time anticipated the current challenging situation facing the Jews of Ukraine, which is obviously the former Soviet Union. And uh, just this morning, I received a message from Shuvu that once again, history is repeating itself. As we speak, Shuvu is involved in the attempts to assist Ukrainian Jews who wish to leave the country and come to Israel and is currently absorbing uh, many of them into their Shuvu school. So it's absolutely incredible how history is repeating itself before our very eyes in the most literal sense. And many of the current arrivals, there's a struggle about which school to send them to. Is it going to be the general public schools or is it going to be uh, Shuvu is going to get them into their school, enroll them there so that they can receive a Jewish education. So it's, you know, just, uh, it's redundant. So it's, um, this, um, getting to the three-part series. This is going to be a, let's just wish, uh, you know, let's hope that everything works out and and wish for the safety of all Ukrainian Jews at this point. Just want to mention that once again, because it's, is definitely something uh, uh, concerning in current events. Um, the This three-part series is going to follow a chronological uh, format. Uh, the part one, which I'm going to try to do today, the is going to be leading up to the revolution, the revolution itself, 1917, of course, the aftermath of the Russian Revolution and the founding of the Soviet Union in 1922, the early years of, uh, of of the Soviet Jewry um, in general. And then specifically, we'll focus a little bit on religious life under the Soviets during the 1920s and 30s. That's what we're going to try to do today. Uh, hopefully later this week or beginning of next week, we'll do part two, which will discuss the Holocaust in the Soviet Union, and then the last years of the Stalin era in the late 40s and early 50s, the Khrushchev Thaw, and then Jewish life in the Soviet Union from the 1940s through the 70s. We'll cover like uh, four, you know, three, four decades there. And then the third and final um, uh, 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 part in this series next week will um, will be about the the different attempts from outside uh, to at assisting Soviet Jewry in various aspects. Uh, people who actually traveled to the Soviet Union to connect with Soviet Jewry. Soviet Jewry in the 1980s, um, the last decade before it collapsed, and then ultimately the collapse of the Soviet Union, and then the Jews of the former Soviet Union, the few who actually stayed, and then the majority who emigrated, where they where they ended up, and then uh, Jewish uh, life 
for those Jews of the former Soviet Union in the United States, Israel, and other countries. And we'll end off with the founding and the activities and, of course, the accomplishments of Shuvu itself, which is to be seen in that context. So, once I mentioned Shuvu, so uh, they didn't ask me to talk about this, uh, the organization, um, but I'm going to anyway, because what I'm about to describe is, is, you know, made a deep impact on me, and I saw it in, like, a, you know, just a larger frame, you know, sort of in a bigger context, not just the meeting itself. Uh, they they asked me to, uh, in, in preparation for this series, to visit one of the Shuvu schools. And I was accompanied by Reb Chaim Michal Gutterman, the director of Shuvu in Israel, and, and Eitan Himmelstein, who's also one of the people in charge of the organization, wonderful people. And it was an amazing experience. So I'd like to share my impressions and how, in my view, that fits into the historical context of the history of Soviet Jewry. Um, I think the listeners will enjoy it. As it happens, it also fits into another historical context, the history of the State of Israel, but that's not our topic, so that will save for another time. I heard of Shuvu growing up in the 90s when its founder, Bavram Yaakov Pam, was still alive, and it was a relatively new organization. I was growing up in Munzee at the time. I knew that it was an American-based organization which built and managed schools in Israel for children of families from the former Soviet Union who arrived with the mass immigration to Israel following the Soviet Union's collapse in the early 90s. I even did what, if I recall correctly, most of us uh, did back then, which was to sponsor a parrot fillin for a Shuvu student when we became Bar Mitzvah. So I was, you know, I did that. I think everyone did in those days. So I knew of its existence, but not much more than that. So when I was contacted by Shuvu to do a series on the history of Soviet Jewry in honor of their upcoming dinner, in that context, I visited the school, the Shuvu school in Petach Tikva, an elementary school and a girls' high school, and it was an eye-opening experience. The best part of of, of the of it was being, you know, shown around as if I was some sort of uh, donor, and since it's unlikely that I'll ever reach that status, this was a rare opportunity, and I made the most of it. I even got a cup of coffee. I, I did the whole thing. So I went into a classroom by the elementary school, and I spoke with the children. Um, I asked them about their family backgrounds and why they attended the school, and then I interviewed the principal who was there from Shuvu's inception, and she related the history of the school, and it's a fascinating story about how the parent body and the students adapted and changed over the decades, uh, what they were dealing with in the 90s when the uh, initial stages of the immigration from the former Soviet Union began. And, uh, and, and you know, and there's a lot of apprehension about, you know, sending to a school when they were actually recruiting for the schools. And to, to, to today, when it's already a second and third generation, and they're literally banging down the doors to get into the schools, the whole different dynamic. And then I went over to the girls' high school, and I spoke to the principal there as well, and I interviewed three students. I was most interested in their family backgrounds. Um, you know, I guess other people would have asked them about their religious observance, but that didn't interest me as much. So I asked them about their origins. One of them, her grandparents came from Birobijan, that wacky Yiddish autonomous republic at the other end of the world that Stalin established for the Jews in the 1920s, um, which way, way back in the beginning of Jewish history soundbites, like probably... I don't know, two, three years ago, one of the earliest ones, I did an episode on it. So I I never, never met someone whose family was from there. So I was fascinated by that. The second uh, uh, young lady was from Moscow, and she herself was an immigrant just several years ago. 
but the family's origins were from Ukraine. They'd only moved to Moscow in the 1920s and 30s. Uh, the third uh, girl was from Kursk, and, and, and one side of the family, the other one was from Kazakhstan, which is also in this former Soviet Union, two different areas. I told her that the greatest tank battle in world history took place in Kursk in July 1943, and that was when the Red Army took the strategic initiative uh, and the Wehrmacht switched uh, to defensive and uh, pretty much a steady retreat for the remainder of the war on the Eastern Front. The poor kid couldn't care less about my uh, World War II lecture, um, uh, you know, but so I tried to keep it short. But either way, her family's origins were from somewhere in the former Pale of Settlement as well, before Kursk. Her grandfather served in the Red Army during the war, as did one of the other ones. Um, all of them had grandparents who were alive, some of whom recalled some Jewish traditions from their youth or the Yiddish language from their youth. Uh, it's just amazing, you know, see the history come alive like that. And Rav Pam, the founder of Shuvu, actually had used the slogan of Doiravi Yeshuvu Heina for Shuvu, Yeshuvu Heina. Doiravi, uh, the fourth generation. This was the fourth generation coming back. Um, and, you know, in the attempt to, to rediscover the Jewish uh, roots and traditions and and to reinforce their identity. Um, it was an incredible to see it in front of my eyes. Um, I then spoke to a class of 10th graders about the importance of tracing their family's roots. I told them that they need to speak to their grandparents and interview them to see how Jewish identity was preserved in the Soviet Union until their recent rediscovery and connection through this, this Shuvu school. I'm not sure how much of an impact the, that little talk of mine made on the students, but it sure did on the principal who was in the room with me. She concluded after I finished, she decided on impulse that the end of the year project for this class is going to be a presentation of an interview each student is to conduct with their grandparent, and that the project is to be titled Bubba Mices. Uh, so I was happy to have had an influence there. Uh, but another interesting was thing that I realized as we were talking, and something quite astounding, was the, the head of Shuvu, like I mentioned, Rebbechai Michal Guterman, who accompanied me on this excursion. He's from Denmark. The principal of the school is from Israel. Uh, I'm originally from the United States, now I'm Israeli. And the three students are from the far reaches of the former Soviet Union. So we had this little uh, kibbutz gullius, uh, you know, ingathering of the exiles in that little office there. So I related a story to them. I told them that I had a colleague of mine in Yad, when I was still working in Yad Vashem, uh, uh, who was a, a, a fellow Stas from the former Soviet Union, completely, totally secular, totally non-observant, not even a little bit. I once asked him where he's from. He says, Tashkent, Uzbekistan. Um, so I said, your family always came from Uzbekistan? So he says, Yehuda, let me tell you something. Everyone or almost everyone, I guess. Some people are from Galicia. But almost everyone is from the same place, the Pale of Settlement. Some moved to the United States at the, 19th, at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th, during the Great Immigration. Others stayed. Some were killed in the Holocaust. Others escaped to places like Tashkent and eventually made it to Israel. And others went straight to Israel. I said, so I said to the, uh, to the girls there, I said, the same thing we have in this room. All of us here are originally from the Pale of Settlement. Some moved to the United States, others to Israel, others to more exotic places like Denmark. Others stayed in various different places, migrating within the Soviet Union, moving to big cities like Moscow or places like Birobidzhan, and then eventually moving to Israel after the collapse 
of the Soviet Union, and all of us are sitting here in the same room in Petach Tikva in a religious school. It's 130 years ago we were sitting in the same place in the Pale of Settlement. Our paths have simply diverged for a century, so we may seem different, different background, different language, different culture, different levels of religious observance, but it's important to remember that we all come from the same place, and we all made it back to the same place. So that was my take. Anyway, enough with my visit. Uh, now let's get down to business, the history of the Jews in the Soviet Union. It's going to be a three-part series, like I said, from the revolution in 1917 until the Soviet Union's collapse in 1991, and a bit beyond as well with the immigration of many Jews of the former Soviet Union to Israel and elsewhere, and how they integrated in their new homes. Um, so first I want to you know, get into the historiography. It's it's it's. The history of Soviet Jewry is a hot field now. Uh, the opening of the archives following the collapse of the Soviet Union gives us access to new sources, new understandings, new perspectives. Uh, we contrast it to the old way of the story of Soviet Jewry uh, to how we're understanding it today. It's a completely un- better understanding. Um, there's loads of sources used. There's books and articles. I just bought, uh, there had a sale on books on Russian Jewry and one of the publishing houses in Israel, so I just bought like eight new books, all on Russian and Soviet Jewry. Um, it's literally a, a bottomless pit. Um, so, you know, it's currently one of the hottest fields of research in modern Jewish history, and it has become a, an obsession in many departments uh, during the last uh, several years. So it, it's this explosion of, 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 you know, has produced so much good work out there, Um like I said, because of all these new archives, not only archives, by the way, it's also oral history. Uh, we finally have access to people who lived in the Soviet Union, and there's a lot of interviews, a lot of talking to these people going on. There's a new generation of young historians, including many who themselves grew up in the Soviet Union and have now researched various aspects of Soviet Jewish life that have either been unknown or misunderstood. But the field itself has been around for a while, and there are many pioneering works which are still quite important today, which were written back in the 50s and 60s and 70s when it was a relatively new field. What follows is a very incomplete sampling of some of the prominent researchers in the field, uh, which has done, uh, which has been done on the history of Soviet Jewry, all of which and others were utilized in the preparation of this series. So there's one of the pioneers, Tzvi Gittelman, who's you know, he kind of went pioneers in the subject entirely. There's Jonathan Frankel, Vladimir Levin, Jeff Feidlinger, Michael Beiser, Ilya Luria, Andrew Sloyne, Arkady Zeltzer, Michael Zand, Yisrael Bartal, Oleg Budnitsky, Yaakov Roi, Mordechai Altshuler, who's also one of the big pioneers, and many, many others. They've each examined different aspects, time periods, and angles of Soviet Jewish life, and the subject is more alive than ever. We refer to it as behind the Iron Curtain. And the result of that reference is, is, is a certain mode of thinking. The Iron Curtain is a post-war speech of Winston Churchill, delivered, I think, in Missouri somewhere, although he didn't coin the term. It, was, it seemingly has, was originally coined by Yusuf Goebbels, of all people, Goebbels, uh, of all people, the Nazi uh, minister of propaganda. And he was referring to the entire... Uh, and uh, I'm sorry, and, but, but uh, it became famous because of Churchill, and Churchill's referring to the entire communist orbit of Eastern Europe post-World War II, including the non-Soviet Union countries, which were still within the Soviet orbit, such as Poland, Hungary, 
and Romania, and, and to a certain extent Czechoslovakia, others. But the, those weren't in the Soviet Union, but they were considered within the Soviet orbit. But the mistaken impression is is that it's some sort of post-war, post-World War II thing, and that's nothing... And then after World War II, nothing really happens in Eastern Europe because it's behind the Iron Curtain, and the Iron Curtain's blocked off from the world. And as far as as far as the attitude towards the story of the Jewish community uh, there, this results in a bit of a skewed impression. We tend to focus ultimately on two external factors, uh, uh, not internal factors of the Jewish community itself, but we tend to focus on two external factors. Uh, the first one is, what did Stalin or Khrushchev or Brezhnev do to Soviet Jewry, with Soviet Jewry being some sort of object in the story? And the other external factor we occasionally talk about is if we're talking about pre-World War II, we talk about Polish Jewry, or post-World War II, we talk about American Jewry or Israeli Jewry. What did those Jewish communities do or not do for their Soviet brethren? Lost in the shuffle is what was Soviet Jewry like itself during this time. And that story is being told more than ever in the last 30 years or so, and it's a very important one and an interesting one as well. I'd like to illustrate this last point by reading a passage from a book by Anna Sternis titled When Sonia Met Boris. And it's about oral histories of Soviet Jews. And it's a great book, by the way. In the introduction, she addresses this view that outsiders have of Soviet Jewry in a very poignant way. I'll read directly a passage from it, um, and, and it'll get the idea of, of, of what I'm trying to bring out. And here it goes. Boris G., a retired surgeon from Ukraine, has, had just reached his 90th birthday when a local Jewish newspaper contacted him with an interview request. In preparation, he positioned his documents on the table, a record of excellent service in a medical unit of the Red Army, complete with three military awards and a workbook from the hospital where he worked for 40 years. Boris was born in 1913 in Slavuta, a small town in the Khmelnytsky region of central Ukraine. His grandfather, who owned a tiny beehive business, was arrested in the 1920s when Boris was a little boy. His father, who worked as an accountant, encouraged him to get out of Slavita to get a better life. Following his father's advice, Boris left when he turned 15 and eventually completed his medical training in Kiev in 1937. That same year, two other important things happened. He got married to his classmate Sonia, and his father was arrested on false accusations of espionage. Boris never heard from him again. During the war, Sonia went to Central Asia, where she worked in a hospital and took care of their toddler's son. Boris was drafted into the Red Army as a military surgeon, worked in a field hospital, conducting dozens of surgeries per week and sometimes per day, and saving the lives of countless soldiers. After the war, Boris worked in a hospital in Kiev, first as a staff surgeon and eventually retiring as the chief of surgery. In 1946, he found out that his parents, his grandparents, and many family friends had been killed in Slavita in 1941, along with the majority of both local Jews and those from neighboring towns and villages. He never found the strength to go back to Slavita, even for a short visit, but he contributed money to help erect a monument to commemorate the victims of the war there. He arrived to Canada in the early 2000s after spending about 10 years in Israel. His grandchildren were born in Toronto. His children found good jobs, but Boris felt out of place. With no knowledge of English or understanding of the local community, he was sinking into a depression. It was his great-grandson, Michael, a high school student, who contacted the newspaper suggesting that they should interview his grandfather, a decorated Jewish surgeon from the Soviet Union. Michael also volunteered to translate. 
The journalist arrived right on time, a pleasant Canadian-born Jewish woman in her late 40s. She began by asking Boris whether he had witnessed any pogroms, because, she said, her great-grandparents too came from the Russian Empire, and they had barely survived. Boris told her that his older brother had been wounded in a pogrom in Slavita. The family hid in a neighbor's cellar in 1918, when Boris was five years old. What about the Holocaust, she asked. Boris explained that he served in the Red Army as a doctor, but as soon as the journalist found out that the story of the Holocaust did not have references to Auschwitz, she seemed to lose interest. Then they moved to the questions of faith. Was it hard to practice Judaism under Stalin, she asked. Boris misunderstood. He started telling her about discrimination that his children encountered when they tried to enter medical schools, about day-to-day negative remarks from neighbors. All of that happened in the 1970s under Brezhnev. But the journalist wanted to know whether his wife lit candles for Shabbos and whether they celebrated Pesach in hiding. Boris, who had learned about religious holidays after he left the Soviet Union in the 1990s, had nothing to contribute. In desperation, the journalist asked whether she and his wife Sonia had a Jewish wedding when they got married in 1937. Boris misunderstood again and showed her a photograph from his anniversary celebrating 50 years of marriage, featuring guests from all over the world and a local ultra-Orthodox rabbi. The journalist wanted a picture from the 1930s, but Boris was at a loss about what to tell her. He and his wife registered in a civil ceremony. They did not really have a wedding, and of course he had no photographs. They spent an hour talking, but Boris never got to show the documents that he had prepared. He had lived his life as a Jew. He never hid that he had been a Jew. He and his family suffered from discrimination, but somehow he did not seem Jewish enough or interesting enough to the well-meaning but unprepared journalists. His life story never appeared in print. However, the story of the failed interview firmly entered family lore. I think I read enough of this book, but you get the idea, and I think that really says the whole entire story of Soviet Jewry. Here he's experienced the century of Soviet Jewish life with all its details, but uh, the lack of understanding of what Soviet Jewry experienced uh, created this um, barrier to be able to get to hear uh, the, the story. Um, so it's important to understand the general timeline of events in those early years to put the Jewish story within the general context. The Jewish world of the Russian um, Empire, until 1914, we're talking about demographically, it's the largest Jewish community in the world by far. Um, it's 5 million Jews approximately. I mean, there's nothing that comes even close to that. Maybe the United States, which is all Jews who just immigrated to, to the United States from Russia. Uh, so, uh, so you know, that, that would just be adding to that number, essentially. Um, there's these emerging political parties, there's changing economics for the Jews, a religious life is on the defensive, there's all kinds of movements going on in the Jewish street. Uh, we could devote a, an entire episode to, f- to getting a screenshot of the Jewish world, what's going on in Russia when World War I breaks out. Now, World War I breaks out, Russia is, of course, uh, fighting Germany and the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and um, even the Ottoman Empire on its southern border, and and the Jewish community of Russia is co- collapses. I discussed this at length um, on the series of, of uh, World War One and the Jews that I did way back in the day, um, and many of them are sent into exile. Many of them, their their homes become the front line, so they go into exile. There are a half a million Jews who serve in the Imperial Russian Army of the Tsar. 
So there's this huge, um, you know, change of those who are serving in the army, and then there's hundreds of thousands who are forced out of their homes or have to, you know, for, for whatever reason, and um, and and they go into exile. There, there's a temporary opening of the Pale of Settlement in August 1915, just to accommodate all those running into away from their homes. There's anti-Semitism from the Tsarist government. Uh, who there's a distrust. The, the, the Jews are considered um, uh, fifth column. They're going to spy for Germany. They, that's why they even exile many of them from certain districts. Um, there's They f- face anti-Semitism and discrimination in the military and from the general population. There's a total collapse of the economy, especially the Jewish economy. People become refugees. There's a complete and total collapse of traditional structures, uh, and communities and religious life are discussed at all on that series. And many Jews are already revolutionaries against the hated Tsar and the hated Tsarist government uh, before World War I, and the, uh, the result of the breakdown of communal life only intensifies that trend. There is a lot of uh, financial assistance that Jews get, mainly from uh, rich, wealthy, the wealthy elite in St. Petersburg, also from the Tsarist government itself, uh, who, do, who do give some sort of financial assistance, but also uh, the American Jewish community is coming together, the Joint Distribution Committee, and they provide financial assistance as well. So now we come to the revolution. The February Revolution is the first Russian revolution, and it, its uh, its effect in 1917, February 1917, and its effect on Russian Jewry is, in May, there's total and complete Instant emancipation for all the Jews of the of the Russian Empire. No more restrictions. No more pale of settlement. They can live wherever they want. It seemed that in one instant, because of this revolution, all the dreams and the hopes of Russian Jewry, of that oppression under the Tsars, everything finally came to fruition instantly. Um, and they start to get organized, and politically, primarily, um, there's the, the, all the political Jewish political parties, and they're going to, you know, want Jewish autonomy and so on and so forth. And a few months later, in October, it's really November, but in the old calendar, it's October, uh, Julian calendar, um, the October Revolution and the Bolsheviks rise to power. And what it follows is the Russian Civil War, and in the mayhem and devastation of the Civil War, it's a terrible time for everyone, but especially for the Jewish population. In Ukraine, which again, Ukraine is in the current events also, but Ukraine then, there's about 100,000 Jews killed between the years 1918 and 1921. Excuse me. And um, this is a, a terrible time. It's the worst series of pogroms in Jewish history, pretty much up until that point. Um, of course, it would be overshadowed by the... Uh, the Holocaust a few years later, but this at that time was the biggest devastation the Jewish people had, had pretty much experienced. Um, Ukrainian nationalists who tried uh, gaining independence at that time, uh, Simon Petliura, um, the white Russians who supported a return of the Tsarist government, were, were very anti-Semitic as well. There were all kinds of warlords, and even the Red Army occasionally. They were usually the best ones to the Jews, but even even the Red Army sometimes wasn't a good place either. We're not good to them either in, in Ukraine. To top it off, there was also the Polish-Soviet war raging at the same time, and Jews were in the crosshairs of that as well. So there's total bedlam, lots of death, destruction, devastation, instability. And then we finally come to the settlements, 
1921, the Civil War comes to an end. The 1922 is the formation of the Soviet Union. The borders are solidified. Eventually, there's the death of Lenin uh, and the rise of Stalin in the mid-1920s. And even before Lenin uh, dies, there's the implementation of the the NEP, the New Economic Policy, as a transitionary stage to the so-called pure communism or a more authentic Marxist version of the economy. So the New Economic Policy allows for some uh, privatization of the economy to give a boost to uh, to uh, to to the the, the, you know, the the Russian economy, which is in shambles. But eventually, as the 1920s progresses, there's forced agricultural collectivization, a rapid development of heavy industry. And then there's the uh, the the program uh, called uh, the dekulakization, which is kulaks. The kulaks were the ones who were accused of being landowners or wealthy capitalist uh, farmers who owned the land and enslaved the working class. And anyone who who the, the who Stalin basically or the Soviet government disliked was accused of being a kulak, even if they were you know not more didn't have a penny more than than the than the peasant next door but they're accused of being a kulak their land and property was seized and they were deported to Siberia usually never seen again it has happened to so many people it was a terrible terrible time and uh, many Jews suffered from that as well they were considered many of them were were considered wealthy kulaks when in fact they were impoverished and they were uh, uh, their businesses were taken away their land was taken away and many of them were deported to the developing gulag, the, the undercover police, the Cheka, which eventually became the NKVD, and the gulag in Siberia. Eventually, the end of the new economic policy and the implementation of the five-year plans by Stalin in an attempt to direct and centralize the entire Soviet economy. In the 1930s, the late 30s, really, begins another devastating period, another murderous period in the history of the Soviet Union, and that is the Great Purge. The Great Purges of the Red Army, the sciences, the arts, and the government itself. Uh, interesting that uh, you know, all the old Bolsheviks are eventually, Stalin sends them all to, in show trials to their deaths. Um, interesting, there was uh, several Jews who were old Bolsheviks. One of them was Lazar Kaganovich. And he was one of the only old Bolsheviks, Molotov, one or two others, but one of the only old Bolsheviks to survive the Great Purge. He was Jewish. He was a perennial survivor, and he lived a very, very long life. He passed away at the age of 98 as the Soviet Union was collapsing in the summer of 1991. Interesting uh, tidbit. Either way, um, so what role do the Jews play in the revolution? Many Jews are revolutionaries. Many of them are happy that they have gotten rid of the hated Tsar, who was so terrible to the Jews. Um, but were they associated with the Bolsheviks and the Bolshevik Revolution? There's a famous saying, not many Jews were Bolsheviks, but many Bolsheviks were Jews. Um, because of that public perception, there was long-term fallout because of that certain anti-Semitic Stereotypes uh, were, were came to be believed because of that in Poland and later on Nazi Germany with uh, tragic consequences. But the, the truth of the matter is, is that, like it said, not many Jews were Bolsheviks. Um, there were some Bolsheviks who were Jews, um, and and that that became uh, you know part of the story. The revolution uh, in in 1917 with the civil war and the accompanying pogroms led to a huge stream of emigration. Many many Jews left the country. Um, they go to 
you know, the United States is still open for the first couple of years, but many, maybe, you know, hundreds of thousands, maybe more, leave during the that period from 1917 till 1923-24 when the borders became difficult to cross. Um, so immigration was a huge story of those early years as it, uh, as it, uh, as it happened. Um, once the formation of the Soviet Union with Bolshevik control in 1922, so uh, emigration out of the country uh, trickled, it came slower. There's the Yevsektsia, which I discussed in another episode uh, earlier, about a year and a half ago or so, uh, which is the Jewish sections of the Communist Party and what they did to, uh, to make the Jewish community into a Jewish communist community and to uh, you know, destroy any vestige of uh, the previous Jewish life of the Russian Empire, the Kahal, uh, political Jewish life, Zionism, uh, most of Yiddish culture, unless it was completely communist, Marxist, Bolshevik, um, and uh, very much so of religious life, Jewish education, religious life, rabbis, and all that. I discussed that then. So that's this time period also of the 1920s. There's this repression of Jewish political life and economic life. It changes in, in their economics. Um, there are attempts at sustaining a Jewish religious life and cultural and political life under the Soviets. Uh, there is Yiddish culture which flourishes at this time, but it's Soviet Yiddish culture. And they have the cultural elites uh, in theater and in, in, in literature and in, in poetry and in, in all kinds of things. It's interesting that that actually flourishes and you know even to a certain extent reached the golden age in the 1920s and 30s. Um, there's the famine, the Holodomor in Ukraine, which affects the Jews just like it affects the Ukrainians there. Uh, the biggest story, though, during this time is the sudden equality, equal rights that Russian Jewry achieves under the Soviet Union. There's no more pale of settlement, they have emancipation, and what follows is rapid assimilation. It's actually shocking how quickly it happened. Um, anti-Semitism somewhat disappears. Officially it does. There's no anti-Semitism in the official sense in the Soviet Union, but it's hard to uproot a lot of those prejudices that existed for so many centuries, so it doesn't really disappear. But it might have been the least anti-Semitic country in Europe, perhaps even the world, during that time, which is, again, somewhat overlooked. We always talk about the bad things of the Soviet Union. But again, this sudden equality and emancipation and and much less anti-Semitism that they were used to. Upward social mobility, educational opportunity, economic opportunity, higher education, universities. It was probably the most liberal society in the world as far as Jewish opportunity was concerned during the 1920s and 30s, I think even more than the United States. Uh, And like I said, mass secularization, assimilation, intermarriage becomes prevalent. It's incredible how rapid that happens, rapidly that happens. And the big big story of this time is the internal migration. Before I mentioned the external uh, emigration, here it's internal migration, moving from the former areas of the Pale to big cities, mainly to big cities, huge, massive urbanization, to Kiev and to Odessa and to Kharkov and to Rostov and to Leningrad and to even to Stalingrad and to uh, Moscow and, and, and uh, Leningrad is formerly St. Petersburg, of course, and many, many, many more urban centers, Smolensk and, and places that Jews never thought of living before and these places become centers of industry and factories and universities and, and, uh, and, and Jews are becoming doctors and lawyers 
and they are, are becoming very successful in in integrating. Um, so this this is probably the biggest Jewish story, the biggest Jewish change is this urbanization, this mass migration from the areas of the former Pale to the big cities of Russia. There's an explosion in Jewish urban population uh, and, 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 and their entry into the professions. Another side story is the Birobijan story and the question of the role of Jewish nationalism in the Soviet cosmopolitan socialist society where there is somewhat nationalistic autonomy, limited as it was during the early years of the Soviet Union. And this goes all the way up until the war. Uh, uh, and uh, and now I just want to mention uh, for a few minutes uh, the story of the religious life during the 1920s. There's still the remnant of the older generation, the old Russian Jewry of the Pale. There are still rabbis, there are still schools, there's still Chabad, there's still others. Um, uh, you know, the Rebbe the Rayats, which I'm going to get to in a second, is there still until 1927. So just to talk about that for a couple of minutes as well. There's this struggle to maintain religious life in the early years of the Soviet Union. There's this story of the Chavetz Chaim. The Chavetz Chaim is in Russia during the revolution. He's in Russia and he stays in Russia during the early years after the revolution, during the uh, civil war. And then he makes a decision to leave Russia and go into what's then independent Poland, the Second Polish Republic. And he leaves. He leaves Russia with his yeshiva. He goes to Poland and his Yeshiva Radin, the town of Radin, is now within the borders of the Second Polish Republic. And he immediately regrets it. And he keeps on expressing that regret for the rest of his life. He keeps on telling those around him, his students, his followers, his, his friends, other rabbis. He Russian Jewry, Soviet Jewry, the ones who were behind the Iron Curtain, remained on the Chavetz Chaim's uh, heart and consciousness for the rest of his life. He kept on saying... We should have stayed. We should have fought them. We should have showed some mysterious nefesh. We should have... What's going to happen to Soviet Jewry? What's going to be with them? They're going to become assimilated. They're going to get lost to communism. They're repressing religious life. How are they going to survive? It didn't stop. He didn't stop talking about it. And he even made a takana um, that every Yom Kippur night davening, everyone should daven for Soviet Jewry, which was a takana that was still kept in Mir Yeshiva in the 1970s and 80s. Yeshiva Reb Chaim Shmulevitz would insist on reciting Tehillim Yom Kippur night in Miriam Shivan Yerushalayim uh, for Soviet Jewry because of the Takana of the Chavetz Chaim made in the 1920s. Uh, that empathy, that continuation, that continued even after the war. So that is kind of like the theme. The Chavetz Chaim defined it for, a new, for an entire generation, for an entire century. The Chavetz Chaim regretted leaving. He said that we should have showed more Messiris Nefesh, we should have fought the Soviets, that the, something should have been done and there's millions and millions of Jews. At that time that the Chavetz Chaim was talking about, there was three and a half million Jews. There was all, not three and a half. There was three million Jews, almost as much as Poland, uh, stuck in the Soviet Union um, with uh, under the, uh, uh, the communist uh, uh, life, which did not allow for much religious life. Um, so that's on the outside, and that becomes a certain attitude that the Chavetz Chaim has and taught and was adopted by generations of Jews afterwards who decided not to be silent and who decided they're going to do something about Soviet Jewry. And that became a very historic moment when the Chavetz Chaim expressed that. Um, there, but within within uh, uh, the Soviet Union, there's early activities on behalf of Russian Jewry. There's the assistance during the revolution and the civil war. Then there's the crossing the borders. Um, there's all types of uh, operations to cross borders. In fact, Rav Ram Kalmanovich was the Rav of a town 
uh, I think in Rakov at the time, that was near the border. So he assisted a lot with the border crossings. The joint in the United States was providing funding. There's other individuals and organizations. And then there's the heroic story of the Rayats. Rabbi Yisav Yitzhak Schneerson, the free Adik Rebbe, uh, the sixth Rebbe of Chabad. Um, and he is there in the early years of the Soviet Union. The Rashab, his father, Rabshalom Bereshnirson, goes into exile during World War I, eventually passes away in Rostov in 1920, and he's succeeded by his son, the Rayats, who together with many of his followers, who are rabbis and activists across the entire Soviet Union, valiantly attempt to keep the torch burning, to keep religious life, to maintain institutions, which increasingly have to go underground. He himself eventually settles in Leningrad, which is formerly St. Petersburg, also Petrograd during World War I. Maybe soon it's going to be Putingrad, who knows. But from there, the Rayats continues to promote religious life. The time Chetimim and Yeshivas go underground. He's tr- struggling to keep mikvahs open and shuls open. Uh, he was arrested several times and was under constant surveillance by the Cheka, which was the forerunner of the NKVD. He was able to receive uh, jo- funding from the joint, and he used it for sustaining religious life, for buying matzahs, for doing all kinds of things under increasingly harsh conditions. In 1927, he finally left the Soviet Union and he settled in Riga uh, in Latvia and later on in Warsaw. But uh, there were many of his followers who stayed behind and they kept it going under almost impossible conditions until almost everything came to an end with the Holocaust. There were other rabbis who stayed behind in the Soviet Union as well. Ramesha Feinstein was a rav in the Soviet Union in Luban until 1936. Rabchatskal Abramsky was a rabbi in Slutsk and Smolensk until he was arrested and deported to Siberia in 1929. And in 1931, he was finally released from Siberia and was able to leave the Soviet Union. Rav Zevin and Rabchatskal-Abramsky were members of a rabbinical organization in the Soviet Union, initially organized by the Rayats, and the two of them founded a rabbinical journal called Yagdil Teira, Under the Communists. It's an amazing story. There's plenty of communal rabbis still in the Soviet Union, acting communal rabbis in the 1920s, in the 1930s, and for a very short time they even have this rabbinical journal, Yagdil Taira, and it's shut down very shortly after its inception by the communists, by the Soviets. Rev. Zevin left the Soviet Union in 1934. Another legendary figure at this time was Rabbi Yaakov Klems of Moscow, who also left in 1934, who did a lot for uh, Judaism in Moscow and other parts of the Soviet Union uh, in, in, in those uh, early years. Many others as well, too, too numerous to mention. The fate of all of them, pretty much, with rare exceptions, was one of three things. Either they left in the 1920s and 30s, like the ones I mentioned just now. Many of them, some of them who we don't even know their names, were killed in the Holocaust, and others were deported to Siberia. Almost zero of them had any chance of lasting long-term in that capacity. It was just too difficult under the new Soviet regime. Along with these figures, it's imperative to mention the countless anonymous individuals, Soviet Jews, who in their personal lives continue to maintain Jewish tradition, going to shul on Shabbos, keeping a Shabbos table for their children, and other Jewish observances, which was was pretty prevalent in the 1920s and 30s. After the Holocaust, is a different story. But during that time, it still happened quite often. This is often overlooked, because almost all of those who did so were eventually murdered by the Nazis during the Holocaust. So... This is uh, an extended, lengthy part one because of my long introduction about my Shuvu visit. 
so this is uh, we're going to continue with part two and talk about the Holocaust and 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 the post-war uh, history of Soviet Jewry, and then with part three of later on. Um, this is Yehud. So key, stay tuned. This is Yehud Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehud at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoyed.